to the Old Testament with me to the little known book of Joel and we'll be there in just a moment. But have you noticed how a lot of people are into restoration these days? How we like to find old things and restore them? I want to look at a few before and after photos this morning uh, to give you an instance of restoration. For instance, somebody might find an old motorcycle and they take it through a process of restoration and like this old Indian motorcycle, it becomes a, a classic piece. Or maybe it's an old car you find in a field like this old Chevy that my daughter is probably going to be drooling over. This is her, her dream car. And, and you take the time to sand down the rust and, and to cr create it almost like new in condition. And it becomes a collector's item. Maybe it's an old kitchen that has old appliances and an old avocado green formica, you know, that you go through and you just gut it all and, and you turn it into a new kitchen that's going to welcome people for another generation. Or maybe you're lucky enough to, to have a Chip and Joanna Gaines in your life. And it's not just your kitchen, but it's your whole house that goes through this, this great remodel. And you get a fresh start and a whole new beginning. Or maybe you're a hockey player and you need to go to the dentist to get a little restoration work done. Uh, we, we restore houses and cars and old furniture and motorcycles. Uh, eventually, everything needs to be restored. Even people uh, go to the plastic surgeon or to the dentist in order to be restored, right? I mean, it's almost a major theme within our lives. And between now and Memorial Day, I want to talk to you a little bit about this theme, broken and restored. I think this is a series that prayerfully each of us can be impacted by and we can relate with because no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've been through, and especially no matter what stage of life you're in, we all have experienced brokenness. Every one of us, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, we've experienced brokenness of some kind. In fact, there's a little box there within your outline, and every one of us could probably fill that in with broken things. Broken lives, broken dreams, maybe, uh, broken confidence. And today I want to kick off this series by talking about how God restores broken hearts. You remember your first broken heart in life? Mine was in early middle school, and her name was Susan Knopfsinger. I still have not forgiven her. The, the love bug had bit during spelling practice, and when Susan and I uh, got close to each other in the classroom, I would stand a little taller, speak a little clearer. You know, on the playground, I would kick the kickball a little bit harder to try to impress her, run a little faster. And I could remember when she and I were selected together to be the attendance helpers for the month. And I was so excited because that meant Susan Knopfsinger and I were going to be in close proximity to each other. I was going to be close enough that I could reach out and smack her or, or pull her hair. Remember, this is middle school, okay? I mean, I was going to be so close to her. And I thought, life doesn't get any better than this. But then on the second day of class, she told me that she really liked my best friend and that she and I were nothing more than good friends. I was in the friend zone. Well, thank you for your sympathy. I mean, I was heartbroken. I was devastated. Uh, they call it puppy love, but let me tell you, it, it felt like love to this puppy. And we all know what puppy love leads to, right? 
a dog's life. Uh, and that was my first broken heart. A broken heart often comes in the form of an unreturned love or you trusted somebody implicitly and you were betrayed. You risked and you were burned. You, you trusted and you were hurt. Have you ever been in some kind of relationship with somebody? And, and, and sometimes it's not just your heart that's broken, but maybe it's, it's your spirit. And maybe in your faith you feel like Job, who said in Job 17.1, My spirit is broken. My days are cut short and the grave awaits me. You say, Bill, it's, it's not that bad, but the brokenness is real. Maybe you feel like King David, who said, I'm forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. And, and you're scraping up the shards, the broken pieces of your life. The psalmist would also write, scorn has broken my heart and it's left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. Brokenness. Max Lucado writes about walking through an old cemetery one day and coming across a, a gravestone that, that marked the body of Grace Llewellyn Smith. And on that tombstone, there was no birthday listed, nor was there a date of death listed just the name of her two previous husbands, and, and this sad epitaph. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived, alone. How sad is that? I mean, think about those words, loved, but was loved not. And the picture that just accompanies that, long nights, Empty bed, silence, no response returned to messages left, no letters responded to in return, no love exchanged for love given, unreturned love. You know, every week that I stand up here at this, this holy desk, every week that I begin preparing a message, one of the things that I try to keep in mind is that in, in any church that I'm a privileged pastor to be part of on any given week there are some people here maybe more than one who have a freshly broken heart one of the things that I've come to figure out in life is is that everybody hurts and then hurt people hurt people everybody's life has pain everybody's wounded mark even pastors hurt don't we absolutely Few of you know the, the, the pain that ministers feel because we have to be careful about who we, who we share our lives with and our heartaches. And there's a fine line that we ride sometimes between transparency and just an outright cry for help for pity's sake. Because we never want to take the spotlight off the God that we serve. I had a colleague down in Nashville, Tennessee by the name of Pete, whose wife back in 2016 fell in love with another man. And she walked out on their marriage, closed the door. And he was the preacher of a healthy, thriving church with multiple campuses. And he went through a divorce. And he knows, as many of you do, that when you're going through a season of brokenness, you need a God that has the power to restore. And here's what he said he learned. He said, generally the pieces that are broken of our lives, they're unseen by people. They don't know what's going on inside of us, but I've learned that's okay because the restorer, God, does some of his best work behind the scenes. 
Now, the theme verse for this entire series, is, as I said, it comes from the book of Joel, and it's a very little-known uh, book in the Old Testament, but a very little-known verse as well. Joel is a prophet of the Lord, and he's speaking to a people in an agrarian society. Most of the people were farmers. In other words, their perfect dream was sitting on their porch at night in their rocking chair, looking out over their lush green fields that were just abundant, or looking over their orchards and fruit was just literally falling off the trees to see that their crops were growing. I mean, that was their dream. And Joel comes to these individuals, and we read in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, these words. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your ancestors, tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm and those that were listening, I'm sure, their minds at that point went into overdrive. You know, Joel, don't, don't even say the word, locust. His listeners are snapping. Don't even go there because the, the absolute worst nightmare for these farmers would be a horrific invasion of locusts that would descend and devour absolutely everything. Now, it's, it's hard for us to imagine because most of us can't conceive of, of the locusts and the damage they can bring. I mean, maybe you've seen a few grasshoppers in your life or you went fishing with your grandpa and, and you used grasshoppers, little crickets to fish for bluegill or crappie. Or maybe you've seen this little guy from Walt Disney and you thought, oh, Jiminy Cricket. I mean, look how cute this little guy is. But in most parts of the world, locusts are, are these big, ugly, uh, nasty creatures that look like something out of a Stephen King movie or, or something. And these insects are so hungry that a locust can actually eat its own body weight in a 24-hour period. Now, let me just say, if you've got a growing teenager or ladies, if you've got a husband and you think they eat a lot, imagine having to go out every day to buy 180 pounds of ground beef or trying to fill your teenager with their weight in pizza every day. You could not keep these things satisfied. They were ravenous and there were a lot of them. Joel describes the onslaught of this invasion of locusts. And literally, it is a plague of biblical proportions. It's the most devastating thing that these farmers who have these dreams of lush crops and fruit trees can think of. Just one female locust that lays her eggs in June can have 18 million offspring by October. I mean, just think of that. These swarms can contain up to 10 billion insects and they create this deafening roar with their wings like a jet engine. And the, the, you hear the crunching of their jaws. And they get in through cracks into houses and in through chimneys. You can't go outside. And they devour your crops. They devour your land. And when they die, they give off this awful rancid stench. Their bodies breed typhus and other diseases in animals and humans. And farmers that have experienced invasions by these say and describe it as a living hell. That's why even today there are organizations that track these swarms. And when they see them by satellite, that's how big they are. They will send out planes with insecticides to kind of ward them away from the crops. That's what Joel is describing in Joel chapter 1. And it's not a little adversity. 
It's a problem of epic proportions. Look in verse 4, how he describes this. I want to read this from the New King James Version. He said, what the chewing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust has left, the consuming locust has eaten. In other words, they come in wave upon wave. And just about the time you're staggering and you think it's all over, another wave hits. Here's what I know. Life has some locusts. Life has these pests that show up uninvited. And like the farmer dreaming about his or her crops, every one of us have dreams. We dream of the perfect life. We dream of the perfect relationship, the perfect marriage, the perfect family, the the perfect children, the perfect career in our life, the perfect house. But into every life, some locusts must fall. On February the 21st of last year, the great evangelist Billy Graham died. His wife Ruth was once asked at a time, did you ever think about divorcing Billy Graham? And her her response was classic. She said, divorce? No, but murder a few times. It doesn't matter how righteous you are or how unrighteous, some locusts come. And some of you have dealt with those invasions that have left with broken lives, with broken hearts, with broken dreams, with broken confidence. For some of you, it was a broken childhood, and I know that because you've shared your story with me. Life as a young person was far less than you had ever hoped for. For some of you, it's a swarm that has just invaded your marriage and perhaps ended the relationship. For some of you, it may be the locus of infidelity that has devoured it. It may have been a chronic illness or an addiction or simply a a major change that has just left you staggering and you've never fully recovered. It may have been a financial collapse that literally feels like your world is, is caving in on you. And you may feel that you're permanently damaged and you will be damaged goods for the rest of your life. But I want you to hear this. Joel chapter 2 paints a picture when there's nothing left. There is nothing left but the dead carcasses of these rotting locusts everywhere. And they're stinking to high heaven. And it looks absolutely hopeless. But Joel is about to share with us that this devastating field that we're laying our eyes on, where it looks like all hope is gone, God specializes in them. You see, God addresses the wasteland that's left behind by brokenness. God sends the rain to wash away the locusts, and he heals the earth, and nutrients spring up from the soil, and he begins to green things up, and God makes this bold and wonderful promise, and this is the theme verse for this entire series. Joel chapter 2, verse 25. In fact, I want to ask you to read this out loud with me if you would. So I will, what? Restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Now if you were to read on from that, I want to share with you what the message paraphrase goes on to say. Then you're going to eat your fill of good food. You'll be full of praises to your God. The God that has set you back on your heels in wonder. 
Never again will my people be despised. And you will know without question that I'm in the thick of life with you. That with Israel I am your God, the one and only real God. That is an amazing promise of God to the nation of Israel. And yet knowing we serve the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, that grace, that care, that compassion, that love comes to us through the life and the ministry and the ongoing restoration that a relationship, not a religion, not some inane uh, habits that we have or defunct spirituality, but a real relationship with Jesus brings into our lives. We have a God that takes the damaged years, that takes the wasted years, the, the hurtful years, the unfaithful years, the abusive years, the addictive years, the years of our biggest mistakes and failures, and he in his great power redeems those years that the locusts have eaten. So friends, whatever, is eating your lunch today, whatever's consuming the fields of hope that you have for tomorrow, God is and always will be greater than them. Amen? We have a great God. Now, as you can imagine, my friend Pete down in Nashville that I mentioned earlier, whose wife left him, those were some of the darkest days of his life. It was a very alone time, and on top of that, he was a preacher, a pastor going through divorce, and he thought, what church would ever want a pastor who's gone through a divorce? Not only have I lost my marriage, my wife, the, the one person that I thought would always be there for me, but he said, in a very real sense, I felt like I had lost my calling and my job. Lose your job, you lose your income, right? Lose your income, you lose your house, lose, lose your income, you lose your car. And he felt like he had lost any prospect he'd had of ministering for the Lord. And he thought, God can never use me again. God would never want to use me again. And he couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. All he could see was that the locusts had devoured everything within sight. But my friend Pete way underestimated God's ability to restore what the locusts had eaten. He far underestimated the heart of an amazing God and he came to know what I pray you will recognize this morning and that you will understand in context as I say this. Friends, God wants the unrestored heart. God wants the unrestored heart because he alone can restore it. Did you hear the man in the video that, that we started with? He said, God already looked beneath the layers and determined that I'm worth restoring. And guess what? So are you. What my friend didn't know is two years later, God would introduce him to a wonderful woman who had been through a similar experience in her life. What, what Pete didn't know is that his church family did not abandon him, but they stood with him and encouraged him and loved him and forgived him. Forgive him, forgave him. What he didn't know was how faithful God would be to him. What he didn't know is, is that he would grow in ways that he would never have grown in otherwise. And friends, what I have seen over and over again in my years of ministry is God restoring to people what the locust has eaten. That's our God. And that is what he does. Parents, 
with restored relationships towards their children, siblings with restored relationships towards one another, brothers and sisters in Christ that have worshipped together but that have been pushed for whatever reason to, to the edge, almost over the cliff of fellowship, brought back into unity in Christ. And God restores. But the question on perhaps your mind this morning in fact, it's probably been on the mind of all of you in the time of your brokenness. It is a question that King David asked over 3,000 years ago. You see, David was in a time of brokenness, and he asked this question in Psalm 6, verse 3. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, my soul is in deep anguish. Now, some translations say there, I'm sick at heart. Not sick physically, not sick mentally. I'm sick in heart. He says, my soul is in deep anguish. And he says, how long, Lord? I mean, how long? In fact, 19 times throughout the Psalms, that query is asked. Psalm 13, 1 says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long, God? Until you bring about what this preacher is talking about for me, this restoration. And that may be what many of you are wondering right now. And you say, God, you know, I'm, I'm a patient person. At least I think I am. Uh, just give me a timeline to work with here. Are we talking about until 2 o'clock tomorrow? Is that when it's coming? A couple days? A week, God? A month? Surely not a year. A decade? Four score and seven years ago? I mean, I mean, tell me, God, how long do I have to wait through this? And here's something that I've learned by my own experience. While I'm trying to figure out this formula to get God to tell me how long it's going to be, you know what I've discovered every single time? God calms and he heals my wounded heart. Sometimes so subtly that, that I, I almost can't perceive when it happened. And I have to look back and say, God, when did you do this? When did you start to pour new hope into my heart? When did you start to pour direction into me? And, and I feel like a far, far, far less wise version of Daniel. When it's said in, in, in Daniel chapter 9 that the angel came, the angel Gabriel, and he says, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. And I love this phrase, as soon as you begin to pray. I wasn't here when you started, but I started moving because God said, that's my son. So start moving towards him. And the word went out, and I've come to tell you because you're highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I've learned by experience, friends, when I pray to my heavenly father, he's already moving to calm my wounded heart because that's what a good father does. That's what a loving father does. And I've also discovered that how long, it's not the question to ask. As if we could understand God's sense of timing. One thing I am confident of is it may not be overnight. And it may, may be over a long period of time. But there's a better question to ask of God. Instead of asking how long while waiting for God to restore us, we should ask, what now? God, what do you want me to do now as I'm waiting for you to move, while I'm waiting for your restoration of the years that the locust has eaten? 
before, and before I close, I just want to share with you some quick lessons that, I, that I've learned in my season of brokenness. When I wondered, you know, God, are you going to restore the fractures in my soul, in my heart? And, and I think these are things that we can apply right now or, or while we're in any season of brokenness. And the first one I would suggest to you is this. Lesson number one, don't, don't pull out on life. Don't pull out on life. The natural response many of us will have when we're hurt is we want to pull into our shell. You know? The first thing we want to do is, is to make sure that we never get hurt by that person, by that situation, ever again. But by withdrawing from love, we risk even more. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you are withdrawing from a relationship that you bounce right back and get in another relationship or that you bounce right back and jump into another marriage because dating and marriage will not heal you. Jesus alone heals. And the experts say sometimes it, it takes up to two years to gain an emotional equilibrium until you're able to make a, a natural decision that's good for you. But as a minister who's seen, seen those situations time and again, I think two years may even be too little. But I would concur not jumping into another relationship. But get around people in healthy environments. Find a small group study here at SCC. Get on a change-making ministry team with other believers. Become part of a healing community. You know, this week, and you could pray about this, Peggy Myers is starting the very first grief share group that we have here. Select group of individuals to, to start, and we hope to expand that to men and, and the whole congregation in days to come. I hope to have a, a dementia and an Alzheimer group here so we can lean on each other in the strength that Christ gives us individually and collectively. Satan will try to pull you away from the fellowship of believers but don't pull out on life. Friends, we're told not to forsake, in Hebrews 10.25, the assembling of ourselves together. We need this, and it says to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then something else I've learned is the second lesson that you have there on your outline, and that is we have to disinfect the wound. You ever cut yourself? I mean, really bad? Uh, honestly, sometimes you're embarrassed how you did it, and so you don't say anything. Uh, I will never forget one of the worst cuts I had in my life. Uh, I was a teenager, and my dad was an independent dealer for Marathon Petroleum, had his own service station. And he would get me up, and we'd go to work at 4.30 in the morning. And, and while we got everything set up, he would go and dip the tanks, and he would sit in his office doing the books, and he would leave me out to run the register for the few people that would come in in those early, early morning hours. And as a teenager, my, wander, my concentration wandered, my mind wandered, and I did some stupid things out there by myself. And I had a box cutter one day, you know those ones with the razor blade that slide out? And I found a little piece of plastic, and I was sitting in a chair, and I started whittling on that, and it jumped off the piece of plastic, and it just slit right across my leg. Now, there's that brief moment with a very clean, sharp cut that you look at yourself and, and you can literally see the capillaries you just sliced through. It hasn't started bleeding yet. And something in your gut says, did I just do that? <laughs> oh, but man, then the blood starts to come, right? And it's gushing out there. And I'm scrambling around. All we had were those old 
credit card receipts, you know, and I'm grabbing those to use as pressure bandages. We had a roll of, of scotch tape, and I'm wrapping that around my leg, and Dad's like, is everything okay out there? Yeah, Dad, not a problem at all, and, and I'm doing the best I can just to staunch this blood flow, but eventually Dad comes out, and he looks at me, and, uh, you know, he asks that wise question that every parent does, and you never get the right answer. What did you do? He took me back in his office, and he grabbed that bottle of, of alcohol. Yeah. And he poured it over the wound to clean it out. Then after he pulled me off the ceiling and stopped me screaming from the alcohol, um, Dad put his arm around me and gave me a big hug. And then he whipped me from stupidity, getting set into the wound, too, after that. But, but if you don't disinfect the wound, you can end up a whole lot worse. You can end up with a worse problem than you started with. And when we're hurt, when we're wounded by these swarms of locusts or individuals that come into our life, what do we want to do? Our first thing, you know, if we don't pull into our cell, we want to put the t-shirt on and get armed and we want to be the punisher, right? We want to we get revenge. We want at least for that person to hurt as much as they have hurt us. And when we hold on to hurts, they fester within us and they create toxins, and it's almost like a gangrene that spreads through our system of, of negativity and criticism and anger and bitterness, and it infects us and the lives of everyone around us at home, at work, and in the church. That's why God tells us in Ephesians 4, 31, clean the wound. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In the mind of those early disciples had to go back to the night when Jesus spoke to them and they, and they had asked him, teach us how to pray. We want to pray like you. And he says in Matthew 6, 12, this is how you pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. We forgive our debtors. Take it from somebody who knows. Friends, I was not able to let go of my past until I forgave the people that hurt me in my past. Sometimes even people that I had ministered with and to. But I had to let the hurt go. See, the book of Hebrews also tells us a great wisdom from above. See to it. Nobody falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. You say, Bill, you, you don't understand. That person in my life, those people that hurt me in my life, Bill, they don't deserve to be forgiven. And you're right. But neither do you. And neither do I. I don't deserve to be forgiven by God but he's forgiven me by choice. We have that beautiful verse in Romans 5, 8 that tells us God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And forgiveness brings healing. Friends, it's freeing and you will find joy can be restored. Freedom can be restored. Love can be restored. You disinfect the wound. And then finally, here's the last lesson. And I would say invite, but allow God to work in you during this season. Invite God to work. I've heard the two most painful things a person can go through in this life are giving birth, shout out to you ladies, 
and passing a kidney stone. Now, I've only experienced one of those two, believe it or not, <clears throat> but you take your pick. And a woman goes through childbirth in this tremendous pain. And, and, and she might say things to her doctor that are cruel and mean. She might curse her husband in that moment because of how she feels. But after a little time passes and that child has been born, she might say to herself, you know, maybe, just maybe, I'd be willing to do that again and have a second child. I've never known anybody that had a kidney stone say, you know what, I'd sure love to do that again someday. I've never known anybody to take a picture of their kidney stone and put it in their wallet to share with people, take a look at this baby, you know. Largest kidney stone ever, true story, four pounds, four ounces. That's mine. I've never known anybody to go on Snapfish and put together one of those little book, my first kidney stone, and share it with everybody that visits at their home. What's the difference? Childbirth is pain with a purpose. Brokenness, friends, is one of the highest schools of education we can ever attend, and God uses it to shape us in those experiences. Brokenness is pain with a purpose if we allow God to work in us and through us and on us during those seasons of brokenness. There are some lessons in this life that are the greatest that will never be learned outside the furnace of affliction. But God teaches us. And some of you can attest because you've, you've lost everything. But having lost everything, you realized that you still had Jesus. And that was more than enough. Because of heartache, you learn the importance of truth-telling in relationships in your life. Because of brokenness, you learn how important it is to get that dark, toxic anger and resentment and smudge of bitterness out of your soul and into the open where it cannot survive in the light of God's grace. Now, for those of you like King David that are wondering how long, really, Am I going to have to live with a broken heart? How long until you restore me? There's something about God that, that, that I want you to understand as we wrap things up this morning. And it comes to you in, in the account of the Israelites crossing uh, the Jordan River. They'd already crossed the Red Sea, and, and all they had was a journey that should have taken one month to enter the Promised Land. It took 40 years, all because of their rebellion. And with each choice to rebel and not obey God, God would simply say, take another lap. Take another lap. Take another lap. But after 40 years, they are finally at the border of the promised land. And a million people are near the main event. I mean, just picture the largest crowd you can. You know, Burning Man, Woodstock, all, all that without the drugs and alcohol. Anyway, they're ready to go into the promised land and the only thing standing in their way is the Jordan River. And you can imagine the excitement as Joshua gives the final instructions. When you finally see the priests that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you see them carry it, just follow after them and you'll know the direction to travel. But then there was this little detail that came up uh, and we learned this in Joshua 3.15. It says, now the Jordan is at flood stage during the harvest. <laughs> Any other time of the year would have been safer. The water would have been shallow. They could have just waded across the Jordan River. But now, 
It's deep and wide, deep and wide, and it's moving fast, and it's rapid. And imagine how terrified these mothers are holding on to the hand of their five-year-old that now are going to cross this. Elderly couples embrace one another because they don't know what's going to happen. And I imagine there were some pretty sincere prayers on that side of the Jordan. Prayers that may have sounded like, God, if, if there's any other way around this, if there's a ford upstream, maybe even a prayer that resembled, if this cup can pass for me, let it be so. But there was a blessing to come through each painful step of obedience. Let alone the priest who were probably thinking, you know, all the rotations in 40 years in the desert and I get this shift, should have called in sick today. Now I'm the one that has to carry the ark and go into the water, but look what happens. Joshua 3.15, Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and so the people crossed opposite of Jericho. Now, Bible scholars estimate that the town of Adam was 19 miles upstream from where they crossed. I want you to think about that. The water stopped far beyond where they could see. So where's God when he seems silent? Where's God during the time of brokenness when you can't see him working? Where is God when you're facing the greatest heartache of the worst kind? Friends, he's working upstream. He works out of your sight many times. The Israelites, they could only see the problem before them. The raging waters, the wide waters. And they could have concluded that maybe God was absent. Or maybe God didn't care after 40 years if they drowned in the Jordan. But they would have been wrong. They couldn't see him because he was working upstream. Our restoring God, friends, does some of his best work behind the scenes, upstream where we can't see him. And our lives become a picture of an amazing God restoring the years that the locust has eaten within our lives. And I've discovered that we have a God that is greater than our pain. He's greater than our hurts, greater than our resentments and regrets, greater than our past. In fact, some of my favorite descriptions in the Bible have that very phrase within them, greater than. In fact, I, I want to share with you, as we close this morning, some of my favorite stories, or, or excuse me, favorite scriptures that include that phrase. And here's what I want to do. When I get to that phrase, you remember in math class, the symbol for greater than, that open mouth up. What do you call that? Greater than symbol. Okay, yeah. Uh, the greater than symbol. I'm going to make that symbol. And I want you to say greater than, okay? So let's just practice it together. Ready? Okay, one more time. Louder. All right, here we go. 1 John 3.20. For God is our hearts, and he knows everything. John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. <laughs> there you go. I know them, they follow me, and I'll give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Psalm 135, 5, I know the Lord is great, that our Lord is all God's. 1 John 4, 4, you dear children, you're from God, and you've overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. 
I love that one. Job 33, 12. For God is any human being. Here's one of my favorite ones. Uh, it comes from Isaiah 29, 16. This is the, the living Bible. How stupid can they be? Isn't he the potter? You, the jars that he makes, will you say to him, he didn't make us? Mark 1, 7, John the Baptist would say, someone's coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. John 3, 31, he said again, the one who comes from above is Oh, you guys are getting weak on me. Greater than any. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks from the earth. But the one who comes from heaven is greater than all. Hebrews 1.4. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave Him is greater than their names. You know, when the Bible says that God is greater than, how great is God? God is our disappointments. God is our failures. God is than the depths of our sin and God is simply greater than because he has promised to redeem and restore the years that the locust has eaten in your life. Stand up with me if you would and let's bow and let's pray. Please, let's stand together. Heavenly Father, as the saints gather around your throne, singing holy, 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 they're recognizing that you are greater than anything, than anyone. And as the elders take off their crowns and just toss them before your throne, Father, there's just the, the conviction that there's so many things Sometimes disappointment with you. Sometimes hurt from one another. Sometimes simply the loss that eats away like a locust at our soul. And we're either watching or we're just holding on to those things. And in this moment, we want to free our hands up to hold on to you. So we're going to throw those things before you. Father, you are our glory. You are our Redeemer. You are the one that looks on the barrenness of our life when everything seems to have been taken away. And you speak to us with the gentle rains that just wash away the stench of all of our yesterdays with the blood that flowed from Calvary's hill. Father, I thank you for peeling back the varnish of my heart and the years of pain to show that I was worth the blood of your son. In fact, there's not a person here this morning that you did not choose to give the greatest sacrifice for. They may not think they're worth anything. They may think they're damaged good for the rest of their life, but they'd be wrong. So Father, help them see the right today. And in this moment of a decision song, whether it's coming to you to give our life to you, to claim, to admit, to open our lives to you as not just the Savior that redeems us from death and the wages of our sin. You're our Lord. You're the one that gets to call the shots and you lead us along the best paths. And you do it for your name's sake. 
like the psalmist said, you restore our soul. God, whatever decision needs to be made from where they stand or, or if they come forward to receive you as Christ and Lord and share that this morning with the rest of this congregation and confess your name. Maybe somebody's looking for a place to call their church home. Lord, whatever it is, move by your spirit in their life. And I pray this in Jesus' name.